0: Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary.
1: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. But there is no doubt that Jerry Hutch, in, in the north inner city, enjoyed an absolutely completely different reputation from almost any other criminal operating in that area. He was seen as a benign force and a, a godfather-like figure who, who could be spoken to and looked after people within the community. And Jerry Hutch has definitely wanted to keep up that reputation, not as an angel, but as an ordinary decent criminal. I'm Nicola
0: Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Jerry the Monk Hutch has vigorously defended his innocence and his reputation at the Special Criminal Court where he is on trial for the murder of David Byrne. In advance of opinion evidence being read to the court by Detective Superintendent David Gallagher of the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, in respect of the existence and structure of the Hutch Organised Crime Group, his counsel, Brendan Grehan SC, asked the court to respect his presumption of innocence in the past, in the present and into the future. Detective Superintendent Gallagher later told the court that the Hutch organised crime group was an intergenerational group run in a patriarchal system, but that it was fluid and less structured than other organised crime groups. Today I'm chatting with Niall Donald about how the monk values his reputation and why he continues to fight for his image in the court of public opinion. This is crime world a podcast from sundayworld.com Jerry Hutch has always fought for his reputation he has um always been taken on this very anti-drug stance I certainly did uh, before I suppose his retirement of sorts around 2010 when he moved out to Lanzarote full-time. But before that, I do always remember there was, you know, there were certainly people who, if ever anybody came to you to discuss Jerry Hutch, they always came on the basis that you do know he's very anti-drugs and you do know he's had this kind of a, a reputation as being a bit of a Robin Hood, a bit of an ordinary decent criminal, somebody certainly within his own community of the North inner city that he, um, he really wanted to keep up that reputation he had.
1: Yeah, I mean if if you think back to the very first time the monk appeared in the newspapers it was uh, in an article written by Veronica Gearon and if I remember correctly he he in the aftermath Veronica Gearon went down and met him and spoke to him for a couple of hours and went in which case he he, he wanted to get across that he didn't have her shot in the leg which was yeah. which is why he first appeared and in fact it was I think John Trainer who was putting his name out there. Mm. So, over the years, then Jerry Hutch has uh, defended his reputation, maybe not in the, the, the very aggressive way. You remember he famously did an interview with Paul Reynolds on RTE, um, ahead of a, a program about CAB. Called uh, Dirty Money, that was called. Yeah. And even re- up to recently, those, that, that interview became a TikTok. Clip sensation where yeah. he's saying to Paul Reynolds, I've read so much about myself in the media, I almost think I did it myself, uh, speaking about the the famous um, Marino Mart. So people, the new generation probably know Jerry Hutch from that TikTok clip as much as anything. So he has always, um, I suppose, if you were to be cynical, you would say that um, Jerry Hutch would have needed to have that reputation in the inner city where he was, mm. you know, where he operated and that that was important for his... his um, his sense of well being, I suppose. Uh, but there is no doubt that Jerry Hutchin in the North inner city enjoyed. A, a absolutely completely different reputation from almost any other criminal operating in that area, where he was seen as a benign force and uh, a godfather-like figure who who could be spoken to and looked after people within the community. And he obviously became involved in in boxing in a very different way than Daniel Kinnahan. He became involved in uh, very much community boxing and and. So, that- at the
0: Corinthians Club, which is where Kelly Harrington got her, her
1: trained, and yeah, and many other uh, very well-known boxers. So Jerry Hutch has uh, definitely wanted to keep up that mm. that reputation, not as uh, as as an angel, uh, but as uh, an ordinary decent criminal, as the, the old saying used to be.
0: And you know, like he had sort of Mickey Mouse convictions, really, from dating back and. Um, you know, while he was suspected and quizzed in relation to the Marino Mart and the Brinks Allied robberies, which were seen as these two sort of military style, quite extraordinary robberies. Um And obviously in 2009, his nephew Gary Hutch was linked to the robbery of the Bank of Ireland in College Green uh, and associates of, of Hutch were suspected of being behind that. But Jerry Hutch in Two thousand was given a big bill by the Criminal Assets Bureau, and that really annoyed him. And obviously, that was one way that he he was going to be connected to crime. But his bill was for unpaid taxes. It wasn't actually a proceeds of crime case. Um, he ended up giving them a bank draft, I believe, for five hundred thousand. This has been related by Felix McKenna, who was the then head of the Criminal Assets Bureau, um, that bank draft. And then he later sold two properties on Buckingham Street in Dublin 1. And he went into the bank and there was some exchange of cash, which McKenna would later say was actually damp, this cash. But nonetheless, he paid over that money. um, And he begrudged that money. He said it was because he had bought properties and he just didn't quite understand the tax his bills, but he, he went on then in order to salvage his reputation maybe to go to the courts and to get a taxi licence. And he said that he needed to earn an honest crust and this is how he knew how to, and he, he got the taxi licence and he set up carry anybody limousine services, a kind of a pun on the cab. Yeah. Um, and really when you look at him between those years and up till about 2006, 2007, he's having a bit of fun. Yeah. He's he's ferrying Mike Tyson around, he's standing for photographs, as we've said before, he he was named as one of the sexiest men in the country you know, yeah um so he's kind of certainly his reputation is you wouldn't be scared of Jerry Hutch people got into taxis with him people stopped and talked to him people did selfies with him
1: yeah absolutely i mean it was uh, an absolutely different reputation than than other people other people that he would have come to come to the fore with would have enjoyed an absolutely different reputation Certainly up until the outbreak of the the Hutchkin and feud, though, would would be a big change to that.
0: Certainly. So around the 2010 mark, you sort of was spending more and more time in Lanzarote where you had... A part of his property portfolio and where he was living. But you remember in 2013, his 50th birthday, and our lads went over to yeah. try and get a photograph yeah. of him. Of course, he was called the Monk, and he always found it amusing because he was supposed to not drink and not
1: smoke, but of course he drank. Y- yes, and uh, the Monk, obviously, that was from Veronica Gearan, and maybe at that stage, or in, in comparison to his other contemporaries, he was living like a monk, was where the name came from, that he, yeah. that he didn't smoke and drink. But People all that was one of the things that people always rang up and said, I don't know why he's called the monkey. Yeah. He, You know, saw him drinking pints last yeah. night and he yeah. smokes away, so I, it, it was... Well,
0: <laughs> and he did, and I actually re- remember associates of his, you know, roaring, laughing about that. And yeah. I'd say he got a sense of humour, ha- has a sense of humour, no doubt, and, and you know, had a laugh himself about the fact that it yeah. was called the monk. Maybe he planted that in Veronica Gearin's head himself so he could be amused by it. Of course, you know, The Sunday World photographed him drunk as a monk, I think was the headline. It was. On his 50th birthday. And there was a bit of a cat and mouse game that time. Um, I'll leave those who were there maybe to tell it at some point. But it was clear that, uh, you know, our guys were there, we're trying to get a photograph of him. He knew that he was playing a few games back with them and
1: eventually he, he got he got caught in his uh, white caught. suit. I think it was a white full white man from Del Monte suit. But uh, yeah, he of course that w- maybe that would have been the indicative of the reputation and the the relationship he would have had with the media then that even though there was cat and mouse going on and yeah. people, one-upmanship going on, there was never probably a, a threat or fear uh, yeah. from, the, from the people who were there.
0: And it's, you know, funny, his his old pal Noel Duggan, who was murdered in, in March of 2016, he was one of the first that was killed after the murder of David Byrne in the Regency. But he, I remember calling to his door one time because John Gilligan was getting out and there was word that he, was this begging bowl going round and Gilligan was trying to collect some funds and had been to Duggan's door and Anyway, I called up and Duggan opened the door invited me and before I knew it I was kind of in his kitchen being offered a cup of coffee and um, he was a larger than life character. Now, he he told me that uh, he hated Gilligan and there was no way he was going to give him money and that nobody should give Gilligan money that he was hated in gangland but that day we had uh, the person who was with me was in the back of a jeep, a surveillance jeep, to take a photograph. I and mean, usually what you'd do was you'd stand at the doorstep, you'd stand aside so the photograph could be taken, yeah. but sure, in I was in the kitchen. But the next day, anyway, the front page was, you know, the headline of Noel King size Duggan or whatever, and a picture of him. And of course, he was in his dressing gown yes. and his slippers. slippers. Well, do yeah. <laughs> But he actually, I had left my number with him, and he phoned me the next day, Duggan. Yeah. And I thought, oh my god, this—he take is your gonna, head well, off What's it. he going to do? And he actually just roared laughing, and he said, "Talent, the next time you call, let me know you're coming, and I'll wear, I'll wear my best Hugo Boss suit." <laughs> but it was that kind of a thing, like that. That was so different. That sort of interaction to what you would have got with some of the younger gangs now, and certainly there wouldn't be interactions like that with any of the Kinnahan crew. No, I mean it's
1: it's funny, of course, working. In Talbot Street, in that, and um, you know, you go out the door, and you would see people very closely linked to the Hutch, yeah, faction, constantly on a, on an almost daily basis. It's a f- funny feature it's their of, turf. yeah, and it's a funny feature of, of Dublin life that, yeah, that that you know there is that that's the way it is. Mm. So maybe it was a, a, yeah, it was a different a different era in a way.
0: And sorry, the reason we're talking about that, really, and the whole idea of the reputation that he has, you know, has worked very hard to keep and, you know, has fought for any time it comes under any sort of attack, we are dealing with the fact that he's sitting in the special criminal court at the moment in the dock, charged with the murder of David Byrne, his co-accused Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney at his side, charged with basically providing the vehicles that facilitated the murder. So he's there and there's evidence being given. And I've just come from the court because today... Um, I was aware that Detective Superintendent David Gallagher of the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau was due to give evidence. We had been told at the beginning of the trial in the opening that he would be giving evidence in relation to the existence of the Hutch Organised Crime Group. And initially he was in court one day and he was supposed to give evidence and there was a bit of a, a sort of a, a reaction from Brendan Grehan, who is Hutch's senior counsel, now, I can't remember exactly what he said. He sort of objected to that and it was parked. And Gallagher returned today to give this evidence. Now, before he was called, basically, Brendan Graham stood up again. And he made quite a kind of an argument in relation to what evidence was to come. And he was he was saying largely that, so the evidence that Gallagher was giving was not in relation to Hutch himself as an individual because he's facing murder Charges and you can't give this opinion evidence in relation to an individual. Yeah. Facing a murder charge, is that right?
1: Yeah, well, I think... It,
0: yeah. It's something along those lines. If I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will correct me, I've no doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but the evidence was going to be kept in relation to the Hutch Organised Crime Group and its existence. But Brendan Graham said that basically... Jerry Hutch is an innocent man. He's entitled to that innocence. He enjoys that innocence today in the same way he enjoyed it yesterday, in the same way he hopes to enjoy it if he leaves that court an innocent man. In other words, if he's acquitted or found not guilty. And he was saying that if evidence was given in relation to. Him or the Hutch organized crime group, that that would be repeated. Yeah. Whether he was found guilty or
1: not. Yeah, because that's that's a thing. Maybe not everybody realizes, but it's a thing called privilege. That while journalists are subject to defamation laws in in, in the normal course of events, if somebody writes something about Jerry Hutch, he, he can sue. But he nobody can sue for what is said in a court. Journalists are allowed to repeat what is said in court for bottom.
0: And once they say it was said
1: in court. Once was, they say it was yeah. said in court and it's it's done accurately, you cannot be sued for that. And that, that follows true as well for things that are said in mm-hmm. the Doll Aaron, for example. So that that is probably what he was getting at. That once this is said in court, it can be repeated forever, and they have Jerry Hutch or anybody else has no legal recourse to to stop it being repeated under any conditions. It's a very strong uh, protection for for freedom of speech, I suppose.
0: That's exactly what he was getting at. Even though he didn't quite say it. Now he did mention that it might be repeated in the media and you know in other elements of his life. And in actual fact, when we look at it, because. This detective superintendent David Gallagher was the officer who gave evidence in relation to the structure of the Kinahan organised crime group, which we have reused. And, and we, we, we yeah. you know, while we knew the structure was there, it gives us that extra level of protection when we're talking about them because it's been read into a court.
1: Absolutely. There's, there's a, and what was said about the, the Kinahan organised crime group during a previous cab case has been repeated and been repeated across the world, actually. And was
0: when D- Daniel Kinahan was named in court as the head of the Kinahan Organised Yes, Kinnahan as, yes, as
1: the, the, the person in charge of the day-to-day operations yeah. of the drug cartel. So that that is something that then gets repeated and was repeated by Panorama exactly. and, and the New York Times, it's relied upon
0: almost. Then from because the, everything we write and say, this yeah. this podcast will be legal before it goes out, is legal. So I mean, it's not as if we can just come out with stuff. We're trained in what we can and we can to yeah. say.
1: The longer you're at the job, the the more, the the more, more you're more you're more aware of of yeah. So, but that 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 what is said in court basically can be repeated forever by anybody without any any risk of legal uh, attack, I suppose.
0: Exactly. And it's sometimes people might notice when we... I know people give out when we stumble a little bit or yeah. we might... Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. But like the stuff we're talking about, we have to be really, really careful what we're saying. And if there is a suspicion, we have to say it's suspected that or it's alleged that. Yes. But we can't just say that as a statement without putting those words in so that sometimes is why yeah, It is sometimes
1: think, why I say you know what <laughs> <As laughs> like, I'm
0: trying to go Yeah because it is and I mean a lot of kind of stuff would be pre-recorded in relation to this and would take a long time and it's illegal and it has to be cut yeah. and all the rest of it if we make a mistake we cause more work for our lawyers and for Ian our producer who has to cut the stuff out etc. So that's just to explain the situation and that's really what Brendan Graham was saying exactly that, that Hutch will be in a position that he enjoys this innocence. He is absolutely assumed innocence. Innocent until proven guilty. But if anything was said, it would be repeated, repeated, repeated. So he'd be stuck yeah. with... It's like a little bit, what is said cannot be
1: unsaid. Yes, and and that is true. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that is fair to say.
0: Now, Justice Tara Burns, now, Brendan Graham did say that he totally respected the fact that the court was operating on the basis it was and that the judges wouldn't be doing anything like that was outside no. the law or that they couldn't be they weren't going to be people that were, were going to be influenced by um no, the, I mean, outside I about, forces or media or whatever.
1: No, I suppose he's he's basically saying that the judges will understand that this is a guard giving his his qualified opinion. Exactly. And yeah. that it doesn't reach to the standard of, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt. But it is, and the courts do accept that that Gardaí are in a position to come in there and give a, a qualified Considered opinion based on evidence, but that the judges don't take that as this is a black or white scenario, and this is this is
0: yeah. And he was saying that you know he totally saw that, and of course then when uh, when Justice Tara Burns came back, she said she was glad that Brendan Graham had pointed that out, and that he was aware of that, that they weren't going to have to go into any argument about that. And um, he basically was saying that he wanted the court to recognise that maybe if the evidence could be kept as narrow as possible if it was literally kept to just what was permissible and what was necessary for the case. Um, now, he did point out at one stage that, given the CCTV that was being relied upon, uh, that that showed clearly that there was this regency was was carried out by an organised crime group. He couldn't just say it was a haphazard thing, it was an organised event, but uh, Sean Gallan, SC for the state, then, kick back at him, well, yeah, you're not accepting a lot of this CCTV evidence, so it's all very well to say that that's showing it and and this extra opinion evidence isn't necessary, but you're not actually going to, you know, you're fighting to have that thrown out. So the long and the short of it was they kind of came back and all agreed to take three paragraphs out of the signed, sworn statement by Detective Superintendent Dave Gallagher out, are certainly not to read it into the court. So the judges have seen it, we haven't. The judges aren't going to... um, you know, consider it. We've no idea what those paragraphs entailed. But what was kind of in the statement beforehand is being taken in as evidence to the court. And then finally, Detective Superintendent Gallagher got into the witness box. Sorry, I should just point out that um, Justice Tara Burns said to Brendan Graham that Hutch would have the, you know, he could make a, a, a submission to have all of that evidence held in private if he wanted to and um, Grehan said that he had spoken with his client and that his client wanted the case to be open in open court that he had sort of fought for that and that he didn't want this evidence to be kept private so got over all that mm. and into the witness box went Detective Superintendent Dave Gallagher so what he said was really um, quite a lot about his own background um, and let me just find that there now because to be an expert witness, you yeah. need to actually have experience. You can't just sort of, not every guard can get in. Firstly, they have to be a certain rank. But secondly, they have to really know what they're talking about. And Detective Superintendent Gallagher laid out his career. He's been the D-super in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau since July of 2021. He's had 28 years service, nearly all of which has been surrounding drugs and, you know, g- gangs. And more recently, um, organised crime groups that affect Ireland nationally but may be operating internationally. From January 2019 to July 2019, he was the D Superintendent of the Garda National Criminal Bureau of Investigation. And previous to that, 2016, so from when the Regency happened to 2019, he was the DI of the Garda's National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. So he was overseeing investigations and uh, managing, basically, investigations. Before that, he said he was a uniformed inspector in Ballymun for two years. And before that, for six years, he was the D Sergeant in Store Street, which is here in the north inner city. Um, previous to that, he was a detective garda for seven or eight years, all around the north inner city and then in the north Dublin area. And. Um, So, you know, he's a very long career and I'd say he knows these people inside and out and the gangs. Um, He's also done a number of courses through uh, Europol and Eurojust, not through them, though. Yeah, he has done some international courses, I think, about police leadership. And he then has a number of uh, certificates and H dips from here in human rights and in, um, you know, organised crime management of of operations and that kind of thing. I'm sure that's not exactly the title of that course, course, that kind of thing, but you get me anyway. So, um, and he said from April 2016, around that time, he was working in conjunction with... um, Noel Brown and Seamus Boland, who are both senior management also in the um, Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, who have been sort of coordinating the efforts against these organised crime groups. And we know primarily that has been the Kinnahan and Hutch organisations yeah. and the feud they're involved in. He mentions the, the feud uh, and the name of it. So, um, yeah, they, they oversaw... Between the three of them, surveillance and tactical operations, they disrupted murders in the process of being happen of happening. We've spoken about many of those. He said of his management role, there are thirty three convictions. Twenty eight were convicted at the time he signed the statement. Um, so that's his background. So that gave him, you know, the the, the credibility to give this evidence. So the evidence was that, um, and again, it's opinion evidence that. It was about the existence of the Hutch Organised Crime Group and the structure of it, which he said was an intergenerational familial uh, group. And it was familial bonds that held it together. He said it was largely based in the Dublin city centre area, that it was... um, organised in a less hierarchical fashion than other organised crime groups. And we'll come back to that. You can comment on that. I'll just finish what he said. He said it was a patriarchal structure it existed under, or a system, a patriarchal system. And that the loyalties were based on monetary gains of those involved. And then he said that um, the Hutch organised crime group was a very fluid organisation for a criminal group that some of the associates would work together, basically. They would often work independently and they would also work with other organised crime organisations. So in other words, it was a very fluid organisation and it, nothing was set in stone with it. And then he remarked that from 2015, he would have seen a galvanization of the positions in the organisation as a result of the feud of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group.
1: Yeah, so I suppose it, it would be... The structure of it given there would be, in direct contrast, maybe to the and cartel, which mm. was a highly structured organization. So we would have, you would have written in particular about people, for example, who would have been in charge of the money operations of of the Kinnan cartel. They then wouldn't have been involved in the movement of drugs or weapons, and they people would have had a very specific role. Uh, it was very much organized in a, a cell structure, which really was was something that came from the the, the way the provisional IRA operated, mm. which means the cell structure means that there's three or four people in this cell. They only know what the people in that cell are doing. They can't, even if they're arrested, caught, bugged, any of those things. Mm. They don't have information about the other bits of the organisation and how they're operating. And therefore, this even if the cell is 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 isn't you know broken down by the police, they don't bring down the whole organisation. So what they're describing, what he's describing with the Hutch uh, Organised Crime Group is something that's based more on a a family structure, really, Mm -hmm. where people are free to, maybe if they're involved in some criminality, they can get involved in another group. There's nobody overseeing it. There's nobody directing just one one part of the organisation, which I think would make sense to what to what we know of these two organizations and they are probably in in you know in direct contrast to each other really
0: yeah and i mean you know that makes sense as well that they will work with each other sometimes or with independently or with other criminal organizations take for example gary hutch who was murdered in spain in september of 2015 he was suspected of with associates from within his own grouping carrying out the bank of ireland robbery in yep. 2009, but he was also a key member of the Kinnahan organized Crime Group. so he was a Hutch associate or, or sort yeah. of a, 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 the next generation of Hutch. He was uh, of course Jerry Hutch's nephew and um, the son of Patsy Hutch who we've heard a lot about in the trial. Uh, but he was a key member and was listed as such of the Kinahan organized crime group and then probably ran some independent stuff.
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of uh, how drug dealing is operated in Ireland is, you know, some of it's on on tick. Um there's not it's not like the famous example of The Wire where people are set on corners and mm. given a wage and you're not allowed to deal with this person you're not allowed, you know, you can only deal with the people above you in the organisation but a lot of or, or organised crime in Ireland is quite disorganised and people will deal with get drugs off one gang one week and another gang the next week and that's, for example in the in the hutch organisation, that's what they're speaking about, that there isn't that Clear demarcation going the whole way down, mm-hmm. a structure where people are on wages and given, you know, you're only allowed deal here and you're only allowed deal with this person. That really what they're 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 saying is that that you know it's the familiar bonds that hold these people together. That's the loyalty there, the making of money, but that that, that there's not um, that overall corporate structure. Mm-hmm. And really, that was the the corporate structure was really a part of what the Kinnehan cartel introduced into Ireland. Yeah, because the Hutch structure from from just that little bit, and I mean, it
0: was only a small bit, and really the significance of it is that that is the first time that the Hutch organised crime group has been named before a court of law as existing.
1: Yeah, and how it is existing. And of course it is relevant because these cases are being tried under anti-gangland laws, and you know the existence of a criminal organization is is a key part of the charges particularly for um mr Bonnie and mr Murphy mm. like they're, they're, they're speak, they their their speed the charge mentions a criminal organisation. So this is an an attempt to nail that down and describe what it is. Mm. Um, And it's based on, as they say, uh, intergenerational familial bonds, patriarchal structure. But what they're really talking about is people that have known each other for a long, long time and have these bonds and ties over many years. Fluid
0: could be, you know, it could be fluid or chaotic.
1: Yes, and I think a lot of most organised crime is quite disorganised in Ireland. Um, And that, you know... Very few groups are set up in the same
0: way as the Kinnehan's. And actually, when you talk about that cell structure and everything, it was Detective Superintendent David Gallagher that gave evidence in relation to that cell structure. It was a separate affidavit, I think, that named Daniel Kinnehan and named the Byrne Organised Crime Group as being a subset of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group. That went through a Criminal Assets Bureau... um, Case and an affidavit I think was given by members of the Drug and Organised Crime Bureau to back up what the Criminal Assets Bureau were looking for that time from the Burn Organised Crime Group. But um, yeah, the the, the Hutch structure is certainly nowhere near as sophisticated. No,
1: and of course we would be aware then, it, it, he's saying from a certain point within 2015, which presumably is the, the real outbreak of, of the feud that... That changed that that structure, and that makes sense because the hutch organised crime group were then on on the back foot. They were in a defensive position, and they obviously had to get a bit more organised and a bit more coordinated in what they did um, in order to survive mm. and to to fight back. Maybe you know, um, uh, but there certainly had that that was a big a big moment for when before I think. What they're saying is that there was the things were very fluid, that fluidity had to to be solidified, I think, in order to 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 stay alive that there's quite
0: a relaxed atmosphere in the trial, and everybody that goes down has noted that there is this sort of um uh, I don't know how to describe it exactly. I mean, Everybody's buzzing around and speaking to one another and quite yeah. friendly. And I wonder, no would it be less,
1: Is it more uh, tense when you have a jury there? I do wonder. Yeah,
0: but I've covered other trials in the special criminal court, and there isn't that same. I mean, mostly there are people. Mostly people are in custody when they're in the dock in the special criminal court, and obviously, Mister Hutch is. But um, this week, I suppose in particular, uh, what was absent from the court, and you know, um, was the. Burn family for two days because, of course, they uh, suffered a tragedy, a, a death of uh, the granny. So basically, David uh, Burns', David Burns, Burn Burns Burn. granny, uh, Maria Shine, formerly Roe, formerly Richardson, a woman who was married twice, I believe, um, and a woman that had thirteen children. If you look at her death notice, she had thirteen children. She seemed to have been a fruit seller on Thomas Street herself, um, among those children was Sadie, the mother of David Byrne and Liam Byrne, and uh, Lisa, the mother of Freddie Thompson, convicted of murder. Um, And there's obviously others there that we know. I remember we did a family structure. I mean, it's an extraordinary amount
1: of... Yeah, I mean, I think it it does. Yeah, I think I could be wrong. I think it was 69 grandchildren or something was mentioned.
0: Because actually her funeral notice lists the 13 children, and then it says that she's uh, got brothers, sons-in-law, daughters-in-law, grandchildren, -grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. So that would be her... So that would be grandchildren of the David Byrne generation, then, would be her great-greats.
1: Yes, David Byrne's kids, for example, yes, would be...
0: Her kids would be her great-grandchildren. So the next generation again...
1: Yeah. Yeah, so an incredible. Of, yeah, but you do see as well, and this has always been true of, of the, the Kinahan cartel, that there was very strong f- familial bonds as well played a role. So you had Fat Freddie Thompson, who's the cousin of the Burns. Uh, Fat Freddie Thompson was also a cousin of Liam Brannigan. Liam um, I mean, And Liam Rowe was a cousin of the Burns. Mm. Um, so. You had a huge yeah. familial collection there, or connections there, but yeah, it's it's look, it's tragic for for in for the middle the, of the trial. That's tragic, yeah, exactly. Tragic for the Byrne family. It's and a great long
0: life. I think she was nearly ninety two. What yeah. an what an amazing age! Mm-hmm. And like somebody, I mean, no matter what, any woman that had thirteen children, and you know, a lot of the in a lot of cases, women back then they might have had thirteen children that survived. They could have had even more than that because yeah. most women did lose babies um you know after childbirth or even before it and also a street trader I mean that mustn't have been quite
1: a tough life it must have been a tough life and a tough tough times in terms of a lot of poverty going on in the 1950s when she yeah. would have had had a lot of her children so
0: so many children to feed and and then of course just at her funeral mass I think there was various relatives saying that she was a real family woman and she just lived for her family and yeah She didn't drink, but she liked her food, I read. Um, So anyway, so that has happened this week. And as a result, the Byrne family have been absent for two days from the courtroom. I'm sure they're going to be back next week when further evidence is heard. I have no idea what's coming next week. Um, You know, we're still on the prosecution case, obviously. So they seem to have finished up on some of the... There's a couple more National Surveillance Unit officers that have to give evidence, I think.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it. there is the big the big moment who's going to be the Jonathan Dowdle moment. I mean, there's no doubt that that's...
0: That and the big argument about the audio and whether the, yes. the recordings were taken in the north or in the south. And
1: yeah, yeah, so I mean... That, that could that take up now, next couple could, of weeks. That could take up a time and that'll either be then... Accepted or not accepted, but yeah, I do think the moment that Jonathan Dowdle, because he will have to, um, his statement will be read into court mm. as as normal practice, but then he has to be cross-examined on all that evidence and that, that will be... Um, by three sets of defence. By three sets, yeah by Three sets, so
0: So. no, I think we're a bit off that. There certainly is no suggestion that we're at that stage yet, but there's a lot of commentary about the efficiency of the court, which has been put down to the fact that there's three women in charge. (laughs) Yeah, Tara Byrne, Sarah Berkeley, and uh, Malone, um, are sitting there. They're three young women, and um, obviously, it's been led by, or headed up by, by Tara Burns, and she is very, very much into using every minute of the court. Um, she remarked at the very beginning how difficult it is to get time at the special criminal yeah. courts because it's booked out. Saw so Declan Brady, Mr Nobody, get a trial date for January 2024 the other day, which is just extraordinary.
1: Um, yeah, no, I mean, it is it is quite different. It's the first time I've been in a court and looked up at the bench and thought the, the judges are more glamorous than myself.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So there we go. Well look onwards to next week and we'll see and you and I are going to do a little bit of a a special for hopefully for Monday morning and um which will be of interest to people I think and it, it concerns a particular area and piece of evidence that keeps coming up and being repeated yeah, that's, and we're that's, going to take a little
1: tour. Yeah, and that's the focus of, of the case. Yeah. Okay. So look for the moment, thank
0: you very much. Thank you.